eating beyond your own best judgment is a very common phenomenon. You know, 40% of the population is obese, according to the World Health Organization, and cardiovascular deaths have more than doubled in the last 20 years, I think, and diabetes is up by 80%. Obviously, there's a problem that a very large percentage of the population has. There's a very discrete series of physical reactions that occur when people um, consistently overeat and develop these bad habits, which makes it feel automatic and feel like it's beyond their control. It's not beyond their control. It is automatic. There is there is a kind of automaticity that develops because the brain is wired to find, you know, lots of calories in small spaces for the least amount of effort. And the big food industry and the big advertising industry goes to no end to um, make sure that we can get as many calories in a small space for the least amount of money we can work out to, to do that. I, I think that addiction is an artifact of, you know, fat cats in white suits with mustaches that are engineering these hyperpalatable concentrations of starch and sugar and fat and excitotoxins and oils and salt that are designed to hit the bliss point in your reptilian brain without giving you enough nutrition to feel satisfied. And the brain is wired to make those things automatic. Welcome to the Live Damn Well podcast. My goal with this project is pretty simple. In a world which has become increasingly divisive and polarized, I want to bring you a balanced perspective of health. To deliver on that promise, I'll seek out experts with conflicting opinions to tackle the topic of health from as many angles as possible in order to make this podcast into an amazing resource for anyone looking to improve their health. Thanks for joining me. Welcome back to the Live Dem Well podcast. In this episode, I'm going to be talking to Dr. Glenn Livingston, a veteran psychologist who has been studying the eating behaviors of many of his clients and did a research study where he looked into specifically binge eating disorder and overeating in general, which is something that most people in their life at some point or another have experienced this sort of feeling of not being able to control your food intake as you plan to do or sort of mindlessly eating. Dr. Livingston is very knowledgeable about this field and he provides some very interesting and pretty controversial psychological tools that we can use to improve our relationship with food, specifically as it relates to improving our control of of our consumption of certain foods. Before we get into the episode, I wanted to shout out several of the show sponsors, the first one being Jigsaw Health Magnesium. Now, I love Jigsaw Health Magnesium not only because it's a great form of magnesium, so oftentimes you'll find like a magnesium oxide or a magnesium citrate or some other form of magnesium which is very poorly absorbed and one which will basically just make you run to the bathroom. So magnesium from Jigsaw Health is actually different in the sense that it's magnesium dimalate and actually malate or malic acid, which is bound to that magnesium, actually may have some positive effects on athletic performance, on improving your recovery from exercise. But magnesium in itself is something that many people may not get enough of and it's something that I started including into my supplementation protocol a couple of years ago, maybe three three years ago at this point, and I found that this form has been helpful in providing me with some anxiolytic benefits, so it's pretty anti-anxiety. And in addition, there are two different forms of this Jigsaw Health Mag, but the first one is without any B vitamins, so if you're already supplementing, then great, then you don't need the extra B vitamins added to the Jigsaw Health Magnesium, uh, but also, they have a form which includes some of the B vitamins, including uh, the methylated forms of uh, folate as well as vitamin B6, uh, both of which seem to be involved in the metabolism of magnesium, allowing it to do its job better. So 
Not only will magnesium have this positive effect on anxiety if you're deficient, it will also help you to fall asleep and the malate that's with it can help with, with exercise potentially. And the B vitamins that are added to it just help it do its job and make it even better. So I love this form. It's also a slow release technology which means that you'll be absorbing it at a slower rate which sounds like it's a bad thing, but you'll be absorbing more of it throughout the day rather than if you just got a mega dose where you'd probably pee a lot of it out. So you're kind of giving the body a chance to spread that absorption time over the course of the day and get more of your money's worth from this magnesium. So, and you give them a look, you can get $10 off of Jigsaw Health Magnesium using the link in the description or using the code LiveDamnWell at checkout, no caps. Please also consider supporting the podcast either through the episode sponsors or through the buy me a coffee link in the description. Finally, we also have Thrive Market, one of my favorite episode sponsors. I have been using Thrive Market for a pretty long time now and I think it's something that really can make an impact on increasing the accessibility of organic health foods to way more people because we all know that it's that is very much a big inequity in health in general so they actually are a subscription-based fully online grocery store they're on a mission to make healthy living as affordable for as many people as possible and you can actually save between 25% and 50% of the price you'd find in a physical health food store near you the membership is just about the price of a cup of coffee per month and you'll usually you know make that back in savings and it's really a curated list of non-toxic cosmetics and cleaning products high quality supplements and even sustainable frozen wild-caught fish and grass-fed beef all shipped right to your door and in addition for every paid membership thrive also sponsors a membership for a low-income family so if you want to make healthy eating not only more affordable but more convenient and delicious, you can try Thrive Market risk-free for a month and get 30% off your first order and a free gift. The link will be in the description for that. Now, let's get on with the show with Dr. Glenn Livingston. All right, welcome everybody. Today I have Dr. Glenn Livingston, a psychologist specializing in overcoming obesity, food obsession, and binging. Disillusioned by what traditional psychology had to offer, overweight and, and food-addicted individuals, Dr. Livingston has spent several decades researching the nature of binging and overeating via work with his own patients and his self-funded research program with over 40,000 par participants. Dr. Livingston, how are you today? Thank you for joining me. I'm very good. I've been looking forward to talking to you, Jorge. So let's begin with food addiction. Uh, I, there's this website, I'm not sure if you're familiar with it, it's called examine.com and basically it has a bunch of like evidence-based, uh, it's a database basically on all the nutritional supplements that most of the nutritional supplements that you can find on Amazon or in your health food store. And it has basically like dosage, it has information on safety and toxicity and it has like all this information on, well, what is the level of evidence that, you know, has lends to its purported health benefits. And it has, well, it's only an observational study or it's like a randomized controlled trial. So I really use this to sort of guide my, uh, guide my understanding of nutrition a lot of times when I don't understand something. And one of the articles that they have is about food addiction. And in the, in the article, they really, in my opinion, they do a very good job of breaking down, like, what is a food addiction? Uh, is it a real thing in, in medicine and in the, what I've learned is that it actually isn't considered to be a real thing. And so I wanted to ask you, how is food addiction different from like the binging and the overeating that you, uh, from the patients that you work with? And is food addiction something that you consider to be like a real medical, uh, medical thing, condition? Well, um, first of all, eating beyond your own best judgment is a very common phenomenon. Um, you know, 40% of the population is obese, according to the World Health Organization, and um, cardiovascular deaths have more than doubled in the last 20 years, I think, and diabetes is up by 80%, and 
kidney disease and you know some diet preventable or diet reducible forms of cancer. So obviously there's a problem that a very large percentage of the population has. And I actually wrote an article for Psychology Today saying there's this diagnostic clinical entity called binge eating, um, which depending upon the study that you look at, two to 4% of the population will fit into. And so the reason I'm mentioning this is that I think that the utility of the question, am I addicted or not, is not really the right question to ask. The utility of the question, I think the question we should be asking is, do I eat beyond my own best judgment? Could I eat healthier? Especially if there were some very practical, practical, non-invasive, non-medically intrusive techniques that I could use to do that. So I just kind of like to set the context before you talk about that. Um, there does seem to be a discrete cluster of symptoms that people experience that you know has to do with uh, eating large volumes of food when they didn't expect to eat large volumes of food, with feeling disgusted with themselves, with uh, feeling unable to control themselves. If you look at the DSM-5 definition, there is really this diagnostic entity, and that's useful for, you know, doing randomized controlled studies about what people who have that cluster of symptoms do versus people who don't. Um, now, the notion of addiction being a real thing or not, um, the I believe that the um, I believe addiction was voted by a show of hands to be a disease at the uh, American Society of American at the, whatever the medical society was that determined that. I don't believe that they did that based on evidence. I believe they did that based on a show of hands. And um, if you look at you know the distinction between um, disease and just, you know, bad choices, that um, disease, disease is something that would get worse if left untreated. So if you take someone who's got Parkinson's disease or schizophrenia or uh, kidney disease and you put them in jail, they would continue to get worse if they're not treated. If you take someone who is overeating beyond their own best judgment and you put them in jail, they don't get worse because they don't have access to the same food. So, so there doesn't seem to be a process in the body that causes this to get chronically, progressively, mysteriously worse. Um, it smacks more of being a bad habit than, than a disease. That said, there's a very discrete series of physical reactions that occur when people um, consistently overeat and develop these bad habits, which makes it feel automatic and feel like it's beyond their control. It's not beyond their control. It is automatic. There is there is a kind of automaticity that develops because the brain is wired to find, you know, lots of calories in small spaces for the least amount of effort. And the big food industry and the big advertising industry goes to no end to um, make sure that we can get as many calories in a small space for the least amount of money we can work out to, to do that and for us to believe that we need that stuff to survive. And so when you when you have um, when you can walk out of the McDonald's and see another McDonald's across the street, um, when, when there's a convenience store in every corner, when you have all these bags and boxes and containers and we can talk about what the industry does to turn off your hungry and full meters, when you have that so ubiquitously, this phenomenon of addiction seems to appear. Um, but I, I think it's an artifact of the availability of things that are not really food. I mean, God bless you if you want to have potato chips or chocolate bars or Doritos and, you know, like he who is out without sin should cast the first stone. So I, no judgments. You can recover. You can recover and moderate those things if you really want to. Some people have to give them up. Um, I'm, I'm not about preaching to people what they should or shouldn't eat, but I will tell you, I don't think that people were sitting around on the savannah 75,000 years ago going, oh, fag eat too much mammoth, right? Or <laughs> Probably you know, not. Yeah. They, they had a big harvest of blueberries and they just had, I, I think that addiction is an artifact of, um, you know, fat cats in white suits with mustaches that are 
engineering these hyperpalatable concentrations of starch and sugar and fat and excitotoxins and oils and salt that are designed to hit the bliss point in your reptilian brain without giving you enough nutrition to feel satisfied. And the brain is wired to make those things automatic. Um, so there are, you know, signals you you pass the McDonald's, you pass the 7-Eleven, you pass the convenience store, and you know that your favorite bag or box or container is in there. Um, and so you develop these habits that you don't really think about, but there are ways to, there's a way to intervene in that automaticity and undo it, even though it feels, uh, because it is a survival drive that's been cor corrupted by industry, even though it feels like, um, you know, you're going to kill someone if you don't get to to have your bag of chips at that moment. So, which is why we have jokes like just hand over the chocolate and nobody gets hurt. So I think that there's a real phenomenon of addiction. I don't think that it's a disease. I don't think that it's um, something that's incurable. I think that there are, with some hard work and hard thinking for a couple of months, you can work your way out of any automatic behavior that has been um, been dogging you. Does that answer your question? Yeah, no, it absolutely does. I think it very much speaks to some of the research that is out there on, for example, ultra processed foods and their ability to, especially ultra processed foods, talking about things like very high fat, very high sugar, very low protein, uh, things that very much do seem to trigger people into uh, some sort of disordered eating, like on a spectrum, not necessarily that like that food will make you become, you know, an overeater. But they're pushing eater. our evolutionary buttons, man. Right. They, 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 yeah. they know what we're wired for and they want us to believe that they've got the stuff. Right. Yeah. And actually, that's something I wanted to ask you too is, is this predisposition to overeating and binging, there seems to be a genetic component to that, right? I mean, especially when you look at studies of like, uh, for example, in the Great Depression, where people did not have very much access to food, most people, and then, you know, their future generations ended up having a predisposition to obesity, or in actually obese people themselves, their, you know, next generations happen to be more likely to develop obesity. Well, I mean, I mean, if you look at the twin studies, there is a concordance of obesity, even if people aren't raised in the same environment. Right. Uh, I, I think that when you look at the percent of variants accounted for, like what to what extent is obesity caused by genetics and to what extent is it caused by environment? I think diet and lifestyle factors come up as more um, more prevalent than the genetics. So, so, I mean, my parents were fat and I was fat um, and I was more likely to become fat than, you know, my, my friend whose name also happened to be Glenn, Glenn who lived up the block who could eat like, um, you know, giant bags of Doritos all day long and not get enough. <laughs> so I, I was I was more likely to become fat. So I had a little bit of a bad hand, but that doesn't translate to being doomed. A lot of people think, well, my parents are fat, so I'm going to be fat. No, it's just, you've got a higher mountain to climb. And right. diet and lifestyle, I believe that uh, at best, the correlations with genetics are like 0.5 or 0.6, which means the percent of variance accounted for is like, 25 to 36% or something like that. So it's a handicap, but it's not the end of the world. And you can live life as a thin person, despite the fact that your ancestors were heavy. That, that's where right. I, that's where I net out on that. Right. Yeah. And yeah. no, I, I, that totally makes sense. Um, there's a lot you can do to sort of overcome your genetic predispositions. Um, and also it's not necessarily that it's like genetics, you may look at a study and say, well, my parents were obese. So therefore, you know, that's why I'm obese. Genetically, it may be that it's, you know, what else runs in families habits, right? As one of my, yeah. one of my previous guests put it, as well. which is why obese people tend to have obese pets. Mm. Mm -hmm. yeah, look, really? Go, yeah. go, go measure the weight of the cats and dogs in obese people's houses. They're going to be uh, significantly higher than that in non-obese people's houses. Huh. I didn't, I didn't know that. I mean, yeah, no, it's, it's it makes true. sense, but yeah. Um, so, okay. So is this sort of predisposition to, um, I guess the word wouldn't be addicted, but sort of addictive like behaviors towards foods, would that um, desire also predispose somebody to be addicted to, you know, substances or other things in general, or is that like specific people, for food? People have different drugs of choice, you know, and, and, um, I do, but what they have in common is this rush of dopamine that seems to occur when you have the substance. And so I believe that 
you know, once you, um, if you find yourself addicted to food, you probably shouldn't experiment too much with drinking lots of alcohol or doing lots of drugs because your, your brain is used to those floods of dopamine. And then there's a paucity of dopamine that results afterwards. There's a crash that results afterwards. And there's a pattern that people get into of trying to replenish that. Um, so I, you know, you do see a lot of um, co-addictions. You do see a lot of people who have, I don't think there's any such thing necessarily as an addictive personality, but there are addictive patterns mm -hmm. that develop. And um, yeah, but, but for example, I, I was a big foodie. I mean, I was almost 300 pounds and the doctors were yelling at me. It didn't matter. And, you know, they said I was going to die by the time I'm 35. Um, triglycerides were over a thousand, all kinds of horrible stuff. Um, but I, I quit drugs and alcohol when I was 18 cold turkey. I just said, I don't like this stuff. I'm not going to do it. And, and I never looked back. I think I had one sip of champagne at my PhD graduation. Um, so, you know, th there's, I think that environments and opportunity influences the, um, the things you tend to overindulge in, in your life. And with the, with the people you work with, um, do you call them patients or clients? I call them clients. I, I, okay. off, I offer what I do is training and education and coaching. And I, I've got 10 coaches that work with me. Um, I, I do that because even though the techniques that we use, which are largely cognitive behavioral, are in accord with um, the evidence about what works for binge eating, it, it's, um, I really see myself not as treating someone it's not I'm, not I'm not like even though i am a doctor i don't see myself as a doctor in that situation because it's not like a treatment i'm performing on someone like a gastric pipe bypass or a medicine that i'm giving them it's a it's a series of information and interventions that they can use on themselves that all hangs together really well it can help them to um overcome their overeating so i, I call them clients and they call me glenn Got it. Okay. So yeah. in your clients, uh, what are the, what are the main risk factors that you see? Like, are there commonalities in, for example, like traumatic events that happened or like family situation, something like that? Well, um, you know, a lot of women have been abused when they were younger and most of my clients tend to gravitate towards me when they're a little bit older. It's funny. I, I, I thought when I wrote the book, um, because it was about me and it's kind of an uh, aggressive approach to overcoming overeating. I'll we'll get into what it actually entails later on. I figured women were going to hate it, but it turns out 95% of my clients are women and a lot of them are, most of them are over 40. So, um, and a lot of them are like in their sixties and seventies. It's really funny. Um, Interesting. So, so yes, most people have some kind of trauma in their background, but um what I would tell you about that is, first of all, it's not necessary to have trauma in your background because the the uh, addictive patterns take over in and of themselves. Um, it's just that sometimes trauma tends to be the thing that turns people to addiction to start with. Mm -hmm. um, and secondly, you know, if your house is burning down, you don't really want to be a detective. You want to be a fireman. You, you want to put out the fire first. So most people think that you have to overcome your emotional issues before you can stop overeating. What I focus on instead, it's more like building a really good fireplace around a well-contained fire in the living room. The fire can keep raging. As a matter of fact, it's an asset, not a liability. Um, think about a fire in a living room, in a well-contained fireplace, people gather around and they make memories and they hug and they cry and they laugh and, and you know, it's part of where life occurs. But, um, as long as there are no holes in that fireplace, you're okay. And so what I do is I help people to sever the link between emotional stimulation and overeating um, by looking largely at the rationalizations they use to, um, to overeat by helping them define more with more clear focus and eliminating ambiguity about the target that they're actually aiming for so they can distinguish what healthy eating is versus unhealthy eating for themselves. And also by helping them to understand 
that most people think emotional eating is a one-way relationship. You have this trauma or emotion, and then boom, you're overeating. But it might surprise you to know that it actually goes the other way too. So a lot of people will tell me they suffer with anxiety and they can't get to sleep unless they overeat. And I'll say, well, you know, anxiety can be measured by galvanic skin response and perspiration and respiration and heartbeat and you know, a lot of very physiological manifestations. When we do animal studies where we reward those manifestations with sugar, it turns out that the animals who are rewarded wind up with greater manifestations of anxiety than the animals who aren't. So baboons who are given a sugar reward whenever they manifest high blood pressure turn out to have more consistently high blood pressure than baboons that weren't rewarded like that. So it might be, and a lot of my clients tell me they find this is the case, that your anxiety is amplified and exaggerated because you're constantly rewarding it with food. And you might have to go through a period of, you know, four days to a couple of weeks where you can't sleep, or you have a lot of trouble sleeping, where you just refuse to keep rewarding it and you'll find your anxiety goes down and you can get to sleep without um, without overeating. So, so it goes both ways. That's what I'm saying. It's, it's not a, um, it, it goes both ways and there's this intervening variable of rationalization mm -hmm. where you can intervene. You okay. Know, oh, yeah. oh, just one bite's not going to hurt, or I'll start again tomorrow. Right. Or, yeah. Okay, that makes sense. Uh, and what did you mean when you said that um, having a well-contained fire in your house is an asset? What is the sort of where do you draw the line between that analogy and actual real life? What do you mean there? Well, I, I mean that um, being in touch with your emotions, whether it's sadness or rage or anxiety or disappointment, mm -hmm. um, that that's an asset. Um, and if you don't subscribe to the theory that just because I'm sad that I have to eat chocolate or just because I'm angry, I need to go suppress that with you know a couple of dozen bagels or something like that. If you don't subscribe to that theory and you're able to sever the link, then it's just energy. It's just energy. It tells you it's uh, it's information about what's happening in your environment. It's information about what's happened to you. It's like emotions are valuable. They're they're um, they're things that give us information and drive us to action. Um, and so we want to be able to have all of our feelings. It's part of what makes us human. This is sounding a lot like something like meditation may be helpful here because the way I understand meditation is that you know you're sitting down somewhere your eyes are closed and you are you're not trying to i think a common misconception of meditation is that you're just trying to have a clear mind have nothing on your mind but from what i found in, in myself what actually works is just allowing those thoughts and emotions to come up and just witnessing them and knowing that they're there and then detaching myself from them is that the way that you think about it and is that something that you bring up with your clients is that helpful my, my mindfulness um yeah mindfulness is a very helpful tool um it's not my expertise it it the result of what i do tends to be more mindfulness because it eliminates the chatter in the monkey mind so what, what i do is i help people come up with simple rules for themselves so for example let's say that i have trouble with chocolate and so i say i'm never going to have trouble i'm never going to have chocolate on a weekday again We'll only ever have it on the weekend and no more than two ounces, right? Very, very clear rule. What, once I know that, all of my chocolate decisions are made during the week. I don't have to be sitting at Starbucks on a Wednesday and listening to this voice in my head that says, um, you know, you worked out hard enough and it'll be just as easy to start your silly diet tomorrow. You might as well have that chocolate bar at the, at the counter at Starbucks, right? Right. I don't have to agonize about that or burn my mental glucose um, and wear down my willpower all day long by making food decisions like that around my difficult food areas. So because my important food decisions have been made, then my mind is free to think about other things and be more present. So the result of the result of having very clear rules and knowing how knowing how to disempower that, um, and we should talk about how to do the dis disempowering, but and but knowing how to disempower that voice of rationalization, the result of that is a quiet mind. But 
that wasn't the original goal. The original goal was just to disempower the monkey mind, if you will. Um, some people say that I probably developed this methodology because I was never really able to meditate. I was someone who couldn't sit still and people would say, well, you really should sit still and learn how to meditate. And the more you don't want to, the more you should do it. And I'd be like, you know, screw you and the horse you rode in and I can't do it. It's not, it's not for me. <laughs> um, and, and now I do. Now I do sometimes. But the the result of what I do might be more mindfulness. But um, I think we live in a world where it's very difficult to be mindful all the time. It's a good goal to have. But I, I think that given the power of the food industry and the advertising industry and the ubiquity of, you know, these hyper palatable foods and the fact that most people in our society are slowly killing themselves with food while agreeing to support each other to do it and kind of laugh it off. I, I think that given that you can't expect yourself to be to mindfully work your way through it. I mean, I, I don't even know if it's possible to mindfully mindfully eat certain types of bags and boxes and containers because they put chemicals in that which turn off your ability to sense when you're full. Um, they 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 manufacture the chips on a variety of assembly lines, so there's slight variations in flavor to hit the variety response in our evolutionary brain, because we learned that when we found variety in flavor, it probably represented a variety of micronutrients, a diversity of micronutrients, which was a survival advantage. And so, um, you know, they're doing all these things to bypass our mindful brain, to activate the reptilian brain. And so I, I think that we need stronger, more forceful tools and very clear boundaries to make mindfulness possible in the first place. Yeah, um, that, that makes a lot of sense. I mean, especially with, you know, the research I mentioned earlier that yes, foods that are very ultra processed and hyper palatable are things that are very difficult to control your intake of. Mm -hmm. um, I was wondering, you in your book, you mentioned that, you know, you, you your inability to lose weight is a survival drive problem, which is basically what you just um, alluded to. And you have these sort of uh, differences in brain regions and food behavior when you discuss like lower brain, like lizard brain, upper brain. Could you explain that a little bit further? Well, um, we probably evolved in environments where food was scarce for long periods of time and then there was a harvest, right? Or a catch or a hunt. And so it would behoove us to get as much food as we possibly could when it was available. And so now that we have these concentrated forms of calories available for very little effort, um, that automatic reflex that says, oh my God, the harvest is here. Oh my God, the catch is here. It, it takes over. Um, but these things are unnaturally concentrated and they don't really contain what we, what we need. So that, that's what I mean by that. There, there appears to be two uh, separate systems in the brain. One is for emergency response, and the other is for resting and digesting and thinking and being mindful. Um, and this is why, by the way, eating mindfully makes more sense and why sometimes people can overcome addictive responses by, by practicing mindful techniques, because it really does calm the reptilian brain. The um, activation of that emergency response takes place in the sympathetic nervous system, the same system that's responsible for fight or flight, um, you know, or, or, or freeze, the same thing that gets our heart revved up for action that gets our respiration revved up. Um, that's, and, and this is the reason why when that system is active, it feels like all your best thinking goes out the window because it's actually pushing up pushing away the, you know, neocortex and the, um, the part of us that's more human, the, the later evolved parts that think about, um, you know, what impact is this action going to have on the people that I love? What impact is it going to have on my community, on my work, on my long-term weight loss goals? Um, and when this drive gets active, it pushes away all of that. And it just says, you know, hand over the chocolate and nobody gets hurt. So there are some things you can do 
to deactivate it. First of all, you have to be aware when it's active. And that's why we have really clear rules. Because if I say I'll never have chocolate on a Wednesday again, and suddenly there's this voice in my head that says just one, one bite won't hurt, even though it's Wednesday because you worked out hard enough. I know that that's my inner reptilian brain. And my book, I called it my inner pig. I probably should have called it, you know, something kinder and gentler, but you can call it your reptilian brain, your food monster, whatever you want to call it. I call that my inner pig. And when I heard it asking for chocolate because I'd worked out harder enough and I could start again tomorrow, I'd say, wait a minute, that's a squeal. My pig is squealing for pig slop because chocolate on a Wednesday is pig slop. And um, I don't listen to farm animals telling me what to do. I don't eat pig slop. I don't let farm, farm animals tell me what to do. As crazy as that sounds, this is what initially gave me my first bit of recovery because it would wake me up at the moment of impulse and help me recognize that that reptilian brain was active um, and that I needed to do something. So I could sometimes make the right choice, sometimes not, but at least it would wake me up. Um, so the first, the first thing you need to do is have a really clear rule so you know when you're thinking about breaking it. Then when you recognize that you're thinking about breaking it, you say, no, that's my reptilian brain. That's my food monster. I have to do something different. Then what you want to do is take what we call a 7-Eleven breath. You want to breathe out for much longer than you breathe in. I'm not going to do it right now because it takes a little bit of time. But <laughs> if you take a couple of 7-Eleven breaths, breathing out for much longer than you're breathing in, <laughs> you're telling your brain that there's no emergency. Because if there were an emergency, if you were running from a hungry bear, for example, you'd be going, <laughs> breathing as fast as you can, trying to, you know, increase your heart heartbeat and feed the whole body to take emergency action. So when you breathe out for longer than you breathe in, you're telling your body it's okay to rest and digest. You're starting to shift from the sympathetic to the parasympathetic nervous system. And remember the rational brain really requires the parasympathetic nervous system to be active because that's when you have time to rest and digest and plan and everything. Then what you can do is you can write down what your pig is saying. So for example, when my pig says it'll be just as easy to start my diet tomorrow, um, I, and I worked out hard enough, I probably won't gain weight. I can write that down because the act of writing is an upper brain activity. It's a rational activity, whereas the act of eating chocolate is a lower brain activity. Then I take another 7-Eleven a breath. And then I ask myself, what's wrong with that rationalization? What's wrong with my pig's argument? Well. It turns out that it won't be just as easy to start tomorrow if I have a craving for chocolate today and I eat chocolate today because what fires together wires together. It's called the principle of neuroplasticity. And that means that if I have a craving for chocolate today and I think let's just start tomorrow and I eat the chocolate, my craving will be stronger tomorrow as will the thought let's just start tomorrow. So I'll be more likely to say let's just start tomorrow tomorrow. And this is why people say tomorrow never comes. Mm -hmm. So I can only ever use the present moment to be healthy. If I'm in a hole, I have to stop digging. So that that's what I would call a, a refutation for the irrational thought that was previously greasing that automatic shoot. So you see what I'm doing? I, I'm inserting a space between stimulus and response. I'm intervening in the automaticity of the chocolate response. Um, I'm, I'm then like pouring sand and glass over the grease chute that was that was there previously to rationalize the behavior and then making it much more difficult for that automatic chain to fire. You can still make the wrong choice if you want to, because we have free will and there's no cure for that, but it makes it a lot harder. Then it's really a matter of asking yourself, well, what do I need? Sometimes your body needs nutrition. Sometimes you'll get these cravings because you're over restricting or you forgot breakfast or you didn't get enough leafy green vegetables that day or um, sometimes it could be that you're overtired sometimes it's an emotional need but but what do you really need so rather than just installing this nazi food policeman in your head that says you will not eat chocolate you you have to ask yourself well what do i have to feed myself instead and for me that combination over time, along with experimenting with different rules that nobody, nobody 
gave me but me like I wasn't following any particular person's diet these were my rules uh, for me that was a miracle over time um, not immediately but over like six months to a year keeping a journal disempowering the things the pig said teaching myself to slow down um, that that's really what did it for me and um, yeah that's that's why I eventually wrote the book yeah, you know, initially, as I was reading the book, and I read the part about, you know, you're calling it your inner pig, I thought that was kind of harsh. And I looked at some of the reviews on Amazon, and some of them are also like, you know, this is too much for me, I can't, I can't handle this. Sort they, of. they say, thank you, Dr. Sensitivity. Right, right. Yes. Uh, but then as I started to read a little bit more, I, I begin to get it a little bit. Um, and I think it is really, I mean, correct me if I'm wrong, but the way I'm understanding it is, it is the essence of of mindfulness it is you are looking at that thought and you are separating yourself from it and you're yeah. calling it something and then yeah. you're writing it down and you know letting it go and choosing to stay present and do what you set out to do that's a really uh, good that's very perceptive that's a good way to look at it and so i was wondering you know why is it that this sort of approach with overeating is based in discipline and control rather than self-love which is like a big theme of your book well First of all, I think that it is loving to make constructive choices. It, it, when you when you when you um, when you love yourself, you develop more disciplines because discipline provides freedom in your life. It doesn't really constrain you, right? Like I, I'm I'm a jazz pianist, and I can only improvise my soul because I know I know the chords and I know the structure of music. Um, every time I've added a discipline, my life has gotten better. So I, I think when people feel like they're able to control their impulses, like they're the master of their own fate, like they can eat well, like they, they can have the body that they want to, their self-esteem goes up and not down. Um, and I, I very specifically define the pig as not really a part of you, but it's all the destructive thoughts that support destructive action. Um, so I think that it's a loving thing to do to separate from those thoughts so you can act in a more loving way. Um, the other thing you should know is that the part of the brain that responds to love is not the reptilian brain. The reptilian brain, which is responsible for addiction, looks at something in the environment and says, do I eat it? Do I mate with it? Or do I kill it? It's like a bad college drinking game, eat, mate, or kill. So this is the reptilian brain. It's the mammalian brain that sits on top of that that says, what impact does this have on my tribe? And then it's the neocortex that says, before you eat, mate, or kill that thing, what impact does this have on the kind of person I want to be on my work, on my long-term goals, on my family? Um, and so I, I tried to love myself then for 20, 30 years. I, I went to you know, all the best therapists. I come from a family of 17 psychotherapists. So that's all we ever talked about was, you know, how do you love yourself more? Um, you know, I, I went to Overdue's Anonymous. I took medication and it, it all made me a more loving person, but it didn't really help me with the food. I get a little thinner and a lot fatter, a little thinner and a lot fatter. Um, so I don't think we can love ourselves then. I, I think this is more like, um, it's more a game of ruthless domination. It's like being the alpha dog of your own mind. And when an alpha is challenged for leadership, it doesn't go, oh my goodness, someone needs a hug, right? It snarls and it growls and it says, get back in line or I'll kill you, right? And there, are, it's really, it's the classic dilemma of how do we manage our animal instincts, right? And and we, we are not. We don't allow ourselves as men to be driven by our testicles. Like we don't see an attractive woman on the street and go out and kiss her right away, right? And actually, I kind of run the other way because I'm shy. Um, but but we don't do that. When we are conducting business and we really have to pee, we don't just drop trial and pee right there. We wait until the end of the thing. We say, look, I'm in charge. I'll take care of this need, but I'm going to do it later when the interview is over. Um, you know, there there are a lot of when we get ragefully angry on the road, we're expected to control that and continue driving within the rules of the road. There are a lot of ways as human beings in a civilized society that we're expected to control our biological impulses. This is just one more. That's what I, that's what I'm telling people. This is just one more. Got it. So it's better to take uh, 
David Goggins approach here. I don't know if you're familiar with David. Yeah, Goggins, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah he's, he's great. <laughs> yeah. Uh, no, and that makes a lot of sense because I think it is this sort of uh, fantasy where people think that this, well, let me, let me preface what I'm about to say by saying that I think for in myself, in my experience, what I found to be more important than self-love is self-respect. And so if I do things that I say I'm going to do, I actually respect myself more. And as a consequence of that, I love myself more because I stuck to, you know, X diet plan, or I did the workout that I said that I was going to do. Um, you know, I did the podcast I said I was going to do. And so I respect myself more and I love myself more. Is that sort of how you can think about it? You, you can't love yourself if you don't respect yourself. Respect right. is a, a necessary condition for love. Right. Yeah. Yeah. It's an antecedent to love. Yeah, I agree. Yeah, I agree. So just to wrap up these uh, solutions here, uh, if I may. So the first one would be don't just rely on willpower, uh, not just this sort of general rule, you need to create very specific rules for yourself. So you know, like you've said in previous interviews, it's like, okay, I'm not going to eat chocolate until the last weekend of the month or something like that, like something very, very specific that you don't have to think a lot about, you don't have to burn up mental real estate, you know, uh, with willpower and, and all it's, that. It's better to say, I'll only have chocolate on the last three days of the calendar month. If you want to indulge 10% of the time, than right. to just say, well, I'm going to indulge 10% of the time and, and eat well 90% of the time yeah. without knowing what that 10% is. Because otherwise, every time you're in front of a chocolate bar, you got to make another decision. Of course. Yeah. And that's like a very common myth that we hear all the time is like, oh, 80-20 rule or 90-10. And, and that may work for people who don't have disordered eating behavior. For the, but for those who do, it may not, it's probably not an option. Uh, the second one, uh, maybe, you know, like what you said, it's uh, detaching yourself from the thoughts and actually, you know, calling it something so that you can actually see what it is, um, that craving that you have, or that desire to binge, you know, making sure that you're aware of it and that you're calling it something, you're writing down what it's, what it's saying, and then choosing to center yourself and be, be present. Yep. Then, you know, something we didn't really talk about, but, you know, you alluded to is that when you're in this sort of survival mode where you're in this this back of the brain region where you're not thinking about your future you're not thinking about you know love or self-actualization that seems to be a stressful thing and probably triggered by stress or if you're in a stressful situation you're probably not going to be planning very far ahead you're just going to be very very uh i don't know tunnel vision focus on emergency action at the moment correct yeah. yeah so what is what is something you know is is that uh, managing stress, something that you discuss. You know, I know you talked about the breath work, which is great for stress. J journaling is very good for stress also. Psychotherapy is very good for stress also. Um, exercising is exceptionally good for stress. I, I think we are meant to move. I don't really understand people that are comfortable not exercising at all. It's, um, it's, it's kind of a birthright. And, um, you know, I, I have trouble getting my clients to exercise, though, I have to admit. I I focused, I, I built a whole program a long time ago called Get Moving, and I tried to sell it, and I think I sold one copy, it, it's just, and I, I have over, I have well over a million readers, so, yeah, um, yeah my audience doesn't like to move that much, that's what I like to do, that's what I like to get on podcasts like yours, because I know your audience are, are movers, and they'll get better results like that, but, yeah. How, how do you get around that, like, with your clients, like, how do you... I don't know if the right word is motivate, but how do you get them to start moving more? I, I meet people where they are. Okay. And and so, you know, a lot of my clients are 50 pounds, 100 pounds overweight. And I, mm -hmm. I'll start them with one simple rule that's focused mostly on the food. It might be I'll, I'll never eat after eight o'clock again, or I won't go back for seconds, or, you know, I will always put my fork down between bites. Something mm -hmm. really simple that they can and will do. And I show them that they have power by, by starting with one simple rule and not setting the bar too high. And then slowly but surely, we add a couple of more disciplines and they start to get better. And we get a 90% reduction in binge eating the first month, by the way, where we've got extraordinary results. And that's documented. Um, in terms of getting people to exercise, I find the same approach works, but I have to wait until they come to me about it. Most people know that I like to exercise. I mean, I you know I've got an assault bike and I live on the beach and um, I you got a Nike out. shirt on. You know, I got a Nike shirt on too. <laughs> Most people know I like to do that, and 
I lead by example rather than preaching that that end. And I'll start in the same way. I'll say, well, what if you never eat breakfast before you walk around the block? You know, just some some very simple rule. And they follow the same exact approach to deal with the um, irrational thoughts that suggest they should sit down to breakfast first. So, um, yeah, so we, we have a, it's very effective when people want to do it, but they have to want to do it first. Yeah, yeah, that's what I found as well. Um, in my limited experience as a health coach, it's, uh, you, you don't really put your goals onto someone else, you wait for them to sort of have that self drive. And then if it comes from them, then it's even better, because once they do begin to make a change and start to add workouts during the week, then they feel very empowered. Yep. Yes, and then success begets success. And I, I also tell people, this is very important for overcoming any addiction, that you need to focus on collecting evidence of success. Most people collect evidence of failure. Mm -hmm. You know, I screwed up, I had chocolate again. I screwed up, I had it again. Well, you know, five bars is better than 15. Stopping after an hour is better than stopping after 48 hours. Um, what, what did you do that was better and why? How did you manage to stop yourself? The questions that we ask determine the evidence that we collect, that it determines our identity. So if you start asking, why can't I stop? Why can't I stop? Your brain will start looking for evidence that you can't stop and you'll develop a failure identity. If you ask, how can I stop? What did I do better? Your brain will look for evidence that you're doing progressively better and how you can stop entirely. So that kind of thing. Okay. Okay. Got it. And what do you recommend for, for that? Is it just like a making mental notes or actually writing down what it is that you did better during the week? Um, well, when there has been a mistake, I recommend people do a postmortem and ask themselves, what did you learn from the mistake? Um, in what ways was this a less painful binge or less damaging binge that than you've had before? How did you mitigate the damage? Um, how did you get yourself back on track? A lot of times people will feel like all is lost and I'll say, well, what percentage of meals over the last year were binges for you? For most people, uh, even serious binge eaters, they've been on track at least 80% of the time. It's just that those 20% does a lot of damage. But when they realize that they're able to eat well 80% of the time, they start to identify with that 80% more than the 20%, and then it comes up. So that kind of thing. Got it. Okay. And what else would you add to this sort of list of um, strategies that you have to help reverse this binge eating disorder? Um, if you need to lose weight, stop binging first. Uh, unless your doctor says it's urgent, stop binging first. That's the most important thing. Um, you probably won't lose weight if you keep binging. And food addiction really isn't an addiction to a particular food, although sometimes you have to give certain foods up. It's more of an addiction to acting on impulse, whim, or emotion with regards to your important food choices rather than your intellect. So make a list of the things that get you in trouble. Ask yourself what role you want those things to play in your life. So some people might say, oh, I binge on potato chips and, um, you know, and cheese and chocolate. Okay, well, what role do you want them to play in your life? Do you have to eliminate them? Do you want to have a certain number of servings? Write a rule for them. And then start to watch yourself as you um, as you try to talk yourself into breaking them and then go through the go through these techniques. The last thing is um, when you are going to lose weight, lose weight slowly. Like when you stop binging and you want to lose weight, um, flood your body with nutrition at a slight caloric deficit. Don't don't try to lose more than a pound or two per week because that almost always winds up in a bounce back. At least in my my experience working with people who have identified as binge eaters, when they um, try to lose weight too quickly, they wind up doing worse later on. So you it, it makes sense to me because I think that the binge response is part of the feast and famine response. I think that it goes back to you know having evolved in a situation where food was largely unavailable and then suddenly it was. Right. So if you tell your brain that you're in a calorically and nutritionally scarce environment, um, and then the moment that it seems like calories and nutrition are available, it's going to want to bench. It's going to want to hoard them. So you can beat that down by never going into the feast and famine cycle and just 
flooding your body with nutrition day in and day out. Right. Of course. And that's, you know, that's the main thing that I talk with my clients about is as well as like, you also, in addition to all of the negative things you just discussed, it's also if you lose weight so quickly, like five, 10 pounds a week or something crazy like that, it's your body's going to adapt to that very low level of calories. And all of a sudden, you're just not going to be able to lose the weight and unless you go down to like dangerously low amount of calories, because you're just your thyroid output's going to be down, you know, your basal metabolic rate is going to go down, you're not going to be burning as much as many calories at rest anymore. So going slowly will help to ensure that you're not, you know, reaching that point. I read this study once, I think it was from 1986, where they took a group of rats, and they put them on a caloric deficit. Let's just say it was sufficient to get them to lose 100 grams of body weight fairly quickly. Mm -hmm. Then they fed them a surplus that helped them to gain it back pretty quickly too. Then they repeated it and they found that it took the rats twice as long on the same calories to lose the weight. So what happened? And, and, and half as long to gain it back. So I'm, it might be exaggerating the numbers a little bit, but the directions mm -hmm. are very true just for illustration. Mm -hmm. yep. What happened was they taught their bodies to hold on to weight. Their, their bodies said, okay, we're going to go through these really severe fasts. So we have to hold on to weight when it's, when it's possible. So yeah. I, I think that it really does reduce your met metabolism. Yeah. Yeah. Um, in terms of, we, we talked about this before the interview, but the way that I understood what you were telling me is that there's a very, very clear difference. And a lot of people don't talk about this between going on a diet and actually changing your eating patterns and your behaviors for the long term. Could you, you know, briefly touch on this distinction? So when you, make a rule like I eventually evolved to never have chocolate again and I had that as a rule for a while mm -hmm. eventually I didn't eat it as a rule I just became someone who didn't eat chocolate right um, it became part of my character and the character just trumps willpower um, so it wasn't like I had to white knuckle it and say oh my god I can't have chocolate I said I've just become a person who doesn't eat chocolate um, when you go on a diet you're anticipating not being on a diet. Uh, when you go on a diet, you say, well, I'm going to make intellectual decisions about what goes in my mouth, but then there'll come a time when I don't have to be on a diet and I can just let all hell break loose, right? I don't have to make intellectual decisions anymore. When you instead work on building character through discipline and rules to um, manage your, your eating, you recognize that when you get to goal weight, you will continue to use discipline and rules to maintain your goal weight. It's just that the rules are going to change. So you've really shifted your eating, uh, at least around the troubled areas from uh, emotions and whims and impulses to your intellect. And that that's the key difference. That's Got the it. key difference. Yeah. Perfect. Yeah. All right. Well, I don't want to keep you any longer. I know you have a meeting after this. Uh, where can people find out more about you and your work? I'd like to give you a free copy of the book at neverbingeagain.com. Click on the big red button and it'll be clear from there. When you do that, you will, th that's in Kindle, Nook, or PDF format. The um, other formats are paid. When you do that, when you sign up for the reader bonus list, you will also get a set of food plan starter templates. So the program is diet agnostic. Um, some people use it for keto, other people use it for whole foods, plant-based systems, point counters, calorie counters, it doesn't matter. We created a set of sample rules. Uh, we say samples and starter templates because you're responsible for adjusting them to your own benefit. And I know that this sounds really weird and harsh in theory. And you must be saying, why does Jorge have a psychologist on with a pig inside of him? It's, it's kind of weird. Um, but it's not really, it's not really harsh. It's actually a very kind-hearted and loving thing to do. So I recorded a whole bunch of coaching sessions so you could hear me take people from feeling uh, in despair and low self-esteem and hopeless to feeling hopeful and good about themselves and confident in just one session. So it's all at um, neverbingeagain.com and click the big red button. Beautiful. I'll include the links to all that uh, in the description below as well. Thank you Thank so you, much, sir. Dr. Lewis. Thank you. Yeah, this is great. Thank you very much for listening to this episode. If you enjoyed it, please share it far and wide with as many friends and family as possible. And please check out my book, Return to Human, How Modern Medicine, the Media, and the Mundane Have Destroyed Our Health and How to Move Back Towards Optimal Health. You can find it on Amazon. Just click the little filter, books.
And please remember to rate this podcast on iTunes. That would help us get this message out to way more people. Thank you for listening.